I, I'm in the camp that uh, I will have no hesitation not giving oxygen to my patients over 90%. As the accompanying editorial to this article says, oxygen has long been a friend of the medical profession. Even old friendships require reappraisal in the light of new information. And that's what our new rapid recommendation on bmj.com does. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And to discuss, I'm joined by two of the authors, Reid Simoniak is an internist at McMaster University in Canada. Hi, Reid. Hi, Duncan. And we also have Gordon Guyatt, Distinguished Professor, also at McMaster. Hello, Gordon. Hi there. Pleased to be with you. And today I'm joined by one of my colleagues, Helen MacDonald, Head of Education, who's also the series editor for the Rapid Recommendations. Hi, Helen. Hi, Reid and Gordon. Hello, Helen. So, for a start, this article is new, but it's an appraisal of evidence that's already out there. So what was it that prompted you to start the rapid recommendation process? Well, the latest piece of information was the systematic review uh, that looked pull, pulled all the studies that had had lower and higher oxygen thresholds and suggested that there were potentially big problems with the higher thresholds, perhaps the most serious problem one could consider of any medical intervention, which is an increase in mortality. A small, but of course, under these circumstances, when you're giving a therapy that might not be necessary, that it might increase in mortality is a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we saw the systematic review um, which was published in The Lancet, and it showed that too much oxygen seemed to be killing patients. And um, we thought it was really important considering how often oxygen is prescri prescribed, it's ubiquitous in the hospitals. Um, but we thought that it was sort of difficult to implement it, uh, the, the results of the systematic review into practice. And so we thought that taking a deeper dive and thinking about it with within the whole rapid rex process would be helpful not just for ourselves but for hopefully um, clinicians around the world who are using oxygen in a hospital do you think people saw it coming reed and gordon do you think there were signs that that this was the case that too much oxygen um was harmful before um i would have said reed may differ uh, it sure came as a surprise to me um, and uh, you know, the, the um, usually uh, people once once a finding occurs, people can come up with a biologic rationale, which the investigators did. Um, I had not been aware of the biologic rationale for why uh, higher levels of oxygen uh, might be harmful. Um, what <clears throat> when Reed says about taking a deeper dive, uh, it was also very important to look at the other end, so that this review, although it focused on the high end and possible harms, uh, it also, uh, in looking more carefully, led us to say, okay, when can you do without oxygen at all at the, at the lower end? And that part of it, I think we saw coming, um, of not starting oxygen 
in patients in whom we traditionally had been starting on oxygen. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. I think it's a good point, um, uh, Gordon, when you say people can always come up with a biologic rationale after the fact. And, you know, reading some of the Twitter and, and social media chatter, but it seems like there's a lot of people who, who happen to know about this beforehand, but it sure surprised me. And, you know, from my experience in the hospital, um, even now, everybody gets, almost everybody gets put on oxygen if they're perceived to be um, sick or very sick. And so um, it definitely came as a shock to me. And, you know, perhaps there are people out there who, who, who did see it coming and who followed the literature a little bit closer. But I think that this, is, this was definitely a surprise for many people. Yeah, and it's interesting, again, uh, pursuing further on the biologic rationale. If, I, if, if somebody had told me the biologic rationale before um, the, uh, I knew about the evidence, I would have said, pshaw, come on, come on. What's the rationale then? <laughs> What's the theory? Uh, Reed, uh, you you might be able to do it better justice than I. Well, it's funny. I've seen I've seen, and, and who knows what's right? I think there's a lot of speculation of it because there's a lot to talk about it. But um, there's a few different things that I, you know, I think are interesting and I find compelling. And personally, for me, when I'm learning about things and trying to remember all the evidence out there, it's it's easier for me to remember when I can think of a biologic rationale. But the the one that I find interesting and compelling is that. Oxygen seems to cause, at least in some animal models, it causes vasoconstriction. And okay. so, you know, in patients who are sick and who need oxygen supply to their organs, and, and probably more so than usual, especially in some situations like stroke and in, in myocardial infarction uh, and sepsis, then vasoconstriction might paradoxically actually reduce the amount of blood flow and reduce the amount of oxygen that the organs receive. Mm. Um, uh, so, so giving oxygen might actually paradoxically reduce the oxygen that the organs receive. Uh, now, you know, whether that, whether that's true or not true, I don't know, but, but uh, uh, it, it's an interesting theory. How do you set about taking a deeper dive at, at an issue like this? Cause you have a very, um, specific process that you go through and specific people who you who you ask to join you tell us about it um, well thankfully we we you know at the end of the day for our recommendations we really don't focus much at all about on the pathophysiology or the proposed mechanisms because people can think of, of a mechanism to justify whatever they their preconceived notions were so we, we, you know, we follow uh, a pretty strict process now that we've been developing for the rapid recommendations over the past uh, couple of years, working together with you, Helen, and the, the rest of the team at the BNJ and with the team at MAGIC. Um, and, you know, we start off with, um, you know, deciding that this was interesting and important. And I think we all agreed pretty quickly that it seemed important. Um, and it was feasible. And so then we needed to go out and find find a, um, a panel that was that suitably represented all of the um, stakeholders. And Gordon, I don't know if you want to take over from here, but what we did next. Well, the first thing I would um, uh, comment on 
uh, for listeners who might be surprised that we're using magic to come up with these recommendations. Um, there is a system called Grade, which is really has taken over as the uh, most worldwide used overwhelmingly system for looking at the quality of the evidence in systematic reviews and a process for moving from evidence to recommendations. And GRADE, uh, the magic stands for making GRADE the irresistible choice. So that's where uh, magic comes from. <laughs> and, and there is a group, uh, the magic group has partnered with the BMJ to produce these rapid recommendations. So. Um, it was, uh, I, I don't know uh, what your memory is, Reed, but the first, the first issue was what questions should we actually be asking here? And uh, that was uh, not necessarily completely evident at the beginning. But so uh, we gave it some careful thought and we, we divided the questions really into two parts. Question one was, uh, should there be an upper limit of oxygen administration and what is that? Um, and secondly, um, in particular instances, is there a threshold uh, above which you don't need to start oxygen? And so the systematic review that we've talked about uh, focused on the first question. But then we looked at um, uh, another series of reviews effectively uh, looking in particular uh, at patients with myocardial infarction and stroke uh, and saying, okay, what about uh, who, need, who actually needs oxygen? Uh, who among the patients with myocardial infarction and stroke need oxygen? Can we recommend against giving oxygen at the, at the lower end? And uh, having defined those questions, uh, we then worked them through with that panel that as Reed has described includes a wide group of people, including content area experts, frontline clinicians, uh, methodologists like us. We also do actually, both Reed and I serve as frontline clinicians in, in internal medicine, seeing such patients as well. And of course, um, the uh, patient partners in the panel. So we worked through to agree on what the questions were uh, and then they produce the evidence summaries at both ends, the systematic review, prior systematic review, having produced it at the upper end, uh, producing new quick reviews at the lower end in terms of the uh, particular populations. And then the panel goes to work to see what are the implications of this evidence and what might be the appropriate recommendations that result. Yeah, I think that the, the, the key part here and I, the, what appealed to me was turning the, the evidence on its head and, and sort of asking what are the, you know, in, in clinical practice, how do we use oxygen? And what are the questions that we really need to know as frontline clinicians? And then we, you know, we looked at the evidence and we saw um, whether or not it could inform those questions. And so, in, you know, in practice, we always prescribe oxygen to a range. And that's because everybody naturally fluctuates their, their percentage of oxygen um, over time. And so you, you can't prescribe a, uh, a single number uh, that, of exactly percentage of oxygen saturation. Um, and so that appealed to me. And I think that that came, you know, not only from, from you know, Gordon, you and I and, and the, the core group thinking early, but also from the patients and then, uh, you know, we had a nurse on the panel and a respiratory therapist and, and you know, a surgeon and, and several different 
specialties of, of clinicians uh, and, and physicians. And, you know, it, it seemed to appeal to everybody. And so, so we had input from everybody on what outcomes were important um, and, and what questions were most important. And I think that was the key part of, of where we're starting and the key part with the rapid recommendations process. We're really we're turning things around and we're saying, what, what's, what do we really need to know as, as, uh, you know, as users of this evidence? So let's get into that process uh, in depth in a little bit. But before that, can you give us the top line? What do your three recommendations in this article say? Sure. So the first one applies to everybody who is on oxygen. And we thought, you know, in people who are on oxygen, how much oxygen should we give? When should we stop? And when should we decrease the amount of oxygen that we're giving? And so the first recommendation was a strong recommendation in favor of keeping the oxygen saturation no higher than 96%. And so uh, in practice, we mean if the oxygen saturation is higher than 96%, then definitely we recommend stopping oxygen or titrating it down. Um, the second recommendation, and now the next two recommendations apply to that lower limit that Gordon was talking about. And for those, there was really only enough evidence to to make compelling recommendations, we thought, for two groups of patients, for patients with acute stroke and for patients with acute myocardial infarction. And the, the, the first recommendation is a weak recommendation, um, and we can discuss why that is in, in a second and why we made two different recommendations. But the first one is to, you know, in patients with an oxygen saturation on the lower end of 90 to 92%, um, we suggested that they should not receive oxygen therapy. Now, we were a bit more certain in the evidence as the that oxygen percentage increased, and we thought anybody above 92% with a stroke or a myocardial infarction, um, we made a strong recommendation against providing oxygen therapy. So, so we thought, you know, in, in, in summary, for patients with acute stroke and myocardial infarction, uh, you know, we really suggest starting oxygen um, somewhere below 90%. And for patients who are on oxygen, who are receiving oxygen, um, definitely we don't think that they should be given oxygen to, to put them above 96%. So, as you said, those three recommendations have different strengths. So what was it that made you decide that there's a, a strong recommendation at the top of the oxygen range, um, but the lower ranges are weaker recommendations? So uh, this was perhaps um, the trickiest. And uh, I think Rita said there was nothing really contentious, but uh, there were a little bit of different perspectives on this one. So we had compelling randomized trial evidence. Patients with both stroke and myocardial infarction get randomized to uh, when, their, uh, when their oxygen saturation was 90% or over, uh, they get randomized to receive additional oxygen or no additional oxygen. And there was no difference, clearly no difference in anything important uh, between the two groups, so that oxygen uh, was unnecessary, wasteful, and inconvenient. And so there seemed no good reason for giving oxygen and reasons, good reasons not to give it. The problem was that if you just took the eligibility criteria, it should apply to anybody with saturations over 90%. Uh, 
Well, the problem was that there were very few people at the lower saturation range who got into these trials. In other words, most of the people were over 94%, and overwhelmingly most of the people were over 92% at the start. So if you just looked at the eligibility criteria, it's 90% or over, but if you look at who's represented in the trial, the higher levels of oxygen, there are many more people who started out at the higher levels of oxygen. And so then the question is, who can we really, we can be confident overall oxygen didn't do anything, but how confident can we be in the areas of starting oxygen range where there were smaller numbers? And we decided ultimately we can be less confident. And then just as it was a little bit tricky what our upper threshold was, where do we switch from a weak strong recommendation? We could have picked 94% or we could have picked 91%. Anyway, the compromise we came was 92%, some degree of arbitrariness to there. Um, I'm, I, I'm in the camp that uh, I will have no hesitation not giving oxygen to my patients over 90%, but others might be more hesitant in that 90 to 92 range. You've talked a little bit about the process where you've had um, all these multiple people from different specialties in the room together discussing this. Um, and I was wondering, do did that lead to a consensus or did different specialties have, have different takes um, on the same evidence? Um, I did not perceive substantial differences in perspective in that way. What do you think, Reid? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think everybody agreed that a potential increase in mortality was important enough that, uh, in a consideration in itself, that that sort of everything else took a lower priority. That said, um, we did get some feedback from from the nurse on our panel that um, we needed to recommend for a wide enough range, at least, to. Uh, in oxygen saturation to allow for some normal fluctuation because if the range is too narrow then um, the nursing resources would be would be too much and the demands on the nursing staff would be too much to be watching them so carefully to titrate the, uh, the oxygen every few minutes and so we you know I think from a practical advice and practical implications of our recommendation we got some helpful input from from the various different specialties so what input did you get from patients specifically so patients can complain of a variety of things that are minor irritants, um, and they things like the oxygen might make their uh, make their mouth and throat and nose dry, for instance. And that might that might not be pleasant. Uh, some people don't like just the physical thing of wearing it; uh, that it's uh, a bit irritating. And people have to be careful about the oxygen catheter when they get up and move around. It's possible to trip on it. And indeed, um, I've heard of a couple of patients uh, where they tripped over their oxygen catheter and broke their hip. The bottom line is uh, that obviously happens very seldom, fortunately. But the bottom line is all these things are issues where they it tells you people should not be using oxygen unless it's really necessary. It, are there sort of notable exceptions to this? So the first one, <clears throat> uh, 
a very prominent one is people with uh, chronic respiratory disease. We sometimes call it COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or CAL, chronic airflow uh, uh, limitation. Patients might know it as bronchitis or emphysema. These patients with bad obstructive lung disease um, often are relying on uh, their, normally you and I, basically what drives our, our drive to breathe comes from carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide goes up and that, uh, that's really what we notice that drives our breathing. These, some of these patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease tend to have high carbon dioxide in their blood at the best of times. And so they lose that carbon dioxide drive to breathe and um, their drive to breathe, they rely on low oxygen, they, they rely on oxygen to give the drive to breathe. And if their oxygen goes to high, they lose their drive to breathe and they more or less stop breathing and they are in big trouble. Um, and it's now, it's pretty well established that you do not want saturations in those people to go perhaps above 92%. So they're a real exception where you have a much lower threshold. Um, you want to keep those people between, typically between 88 and 92%. So you might let them go a little lower than 90. Uh, you don't want them to go too high. So that's one very important uh, uh, subgroup of patients that needs to be treated differently. And I think the the part of the discussion that we had within our panel as well, and you'll see some of the 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 other diseases here. But there's some other comorbidities that are I think becoming increasingly recognized as as being similar to COPD in many ways, where patients are also reliant on their um, oxygen levels uh, to to drive their breathing, and so. Um, you know, things like obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, and people with severe um, obstructive sleep apnea, or some pe patients with neuromuscular respiratory diseases also rely on their oxygen. Uh, and so it, it's more than just COPD, and it's worth thinking about um, in the individual patients as well. And so we list a few, but, but it's hard to be um, inclusive with that list because it really does go on for quite a, quite a ways. So yeah, so as Reed says, um, the there are these group of patients where you are suspicious that they have chronically elevated uh, carbon dioxide, either 24 hours or just at night. They have, and they're now relying on low oxygen to drive the breathing. Anybody in whom you have any of the variety of conditions that uh, Reed listed, of which this chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is the most common, but there are these others, where you have to be, you have to be careful in any such patient. On the other side, there's some patients with um, who might benefit, and and the evidence is variable, and we didn't review all of it, but who might benefit from a higher oxygen saturation from the beginning, um, and definitely that applies to patients with carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, and from coming from burns. Um, some patients with sickle cell crises and pneumothorax and cluster headaches as well might benefit from from 100% oxygen right from the start or high flow oxygen from the start. Um, and so those those patients would be on the other end, uh, the other end of the spectrum, and are worth considering as well, but but are much less common. And then there was a group of patients that we, you know, in our recommendation, there's there's separate groups of evidence, and we didn't 
review the evidence. And so patients who are going for, um, you know, elective surgery, there's a, there's a whole area of debate right now about whether or not oxygen helps prevent um, uh, post-operative infections. And uh, with some heated, heated um, um, thoughts on both sides, and um, as far as I'm aware, it's not definitively uh, solved yet. And so we didn't, we didn't wade into that group of patients at all. And same with uh, neonates coming out. There's there's a there's totally different considerations about um, retinopathy and and other complications with oxygen that are well worth considering. And and I'd imagine that the the people treating those those neonates or elective surgical patients will have to look elsewhere for for supplementary evidence to to our recommendation. I have, I have a tricky question. Okay. So. Thinking about how um, ingrained oxygen is in doctors and, and allied health professionals' behaviour and how ingrained it even may be as an expectation in patients, do you think that there were sort of any biases in the trials that could feed into that? So, for example, the trials, was it sort of oxygen versus no oxygen or was it oxygen versus some kind of placebo oxygen where they had sort of some air blown in their, in their face or something? Um, I'm just wondering if, if, if there's anything about the sort of act of giving oxygen, which is helpful. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, I don't work in hospital now, but when I did, it, you put some oxygen on and you're looking at someone who's acutely ill. It gives you a bit of time to think about things. It gives the patient some time to sort of try and gather their thoughts while you're making your assessment. Are, are there any factors like that important here? Well... Um, if the oxygen saturation starts over 90%, I don't need to raise the oxygen while I'm thinking. And uh, uh, I don't think the patient um, and the, the patient who, uh, now we should distinguish. There's, there's, a one, there's one, we're talking about people who are not short of breath. So we're talking about people who uh, they've had a stroke and it's horrible and they can't move one side of their body or they've had a heart attack and they've had chest pain that's terrible and they don't like that. Um, yeah, th this is different from somebody that's short, who's short of breath. And somebody who's short of breath, then, Helen, um, you're uh, giving some oxygen while you wait to see what happens is, um, uh, is more reasonable in that case. And these trials were... Uh, these trials excluded individuals who had resp real respiratory problems at the start. And is this um is this the final word on oxygen? Do you think, or do you think there's more studies expected, or particular studies needed to plug um plug evidence gaps? Well, Reed has just mentioned the uh, for instance, it's unsettled about. Um, I am skeptical of the claims of oxygen uh, decreasing post-operative infection. But we're both we're both pretty skeptical. But there are some people who um, uh, the evidence is conflicting. The evidence is not definitive. So uh, that probably should be sorted out. Um, I've told you that I am quite happy if somebody is not short of breath and having a stroke or myocardial infarction and their saturation is 91%, I'm quite happy not giving them oxygen. But that was, it ended up as a weak recommendation because there weren't enough patients to establish that definitively. So 
um, to those who, for those who are still inclined to give oxygen to such patients, it would be nice to have a study that I think would definitively show you don't need to give oxygen to those people either. You know, I, I, what I think, honestly, Han, is I, as well, that this, this recommendation or these recommendations hopefully will open up a whole new area of research where things that we've taken for, for granted in the past or we've taken as, as gospel, you know, we can, we can start to question again. And, you know, things like where, where is the optimal place to start oxygen we we think it's below 90 percent for at least for for a lot of patients but how far below 90 percent and so i think that there's there's a lot of really important questions that come from this and hopefully we can we can break some of that dogma have you thought about how this could be practically rolled out or perhaps have you heard from um people in hospitals about how they think they could make it work well, I mean, I, you know, my perspective is that it, it's actually the recommendations themselves are quite easy to, to implement if you take them at face value, where I think the resistance or the, the trouble in implementing this into practice will come from is the longstanding, you know, cultural practice of using oxygen very liberally. And I, I think that will take time and education and and a degree of culture change and culture shift before before the recommendations are implemented um you know it it, it makes you wonder if, if oxygen i think sometimes provides clinicians more comfort to themselves than it does to the patient or benefit to the patient and and i think that's sometimes what clinicians are doing when they they're worried about the oxygen saturation falling and and we can raise it with 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 supplemental oxygen and it makes it makes us feel good when in reality it's it's clearly not helping the patient and so i, I think it's that that um sort of cognitive dissonance or, or paradox might be difficult for people to overcome unless they've really thought about it and so I hope that that it'll be implemented, you know, quickly. But I and I really do think that it 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 uh, it's quite it'll be quite easy to implement if you if you take the recommendations at face value. But um, that culture shift might take some time. I had a look on social media before we started this conversation, um, and it doesn't seem like so far there's been very much disagreement at all. Um, actually. More people seem to feel like this is a kind of nice stamp of approval on what they had perhaps begun to think about themselves. Well, there were probably, uh, personally, with these myocardial infarction people who come in at over 90% or even over 95% or even 98% and people stick oxygen on, I always thought it was nuts. So there might have been a lot of people walking around uh, like I was saying, why are we doing this? <laughs> That might have been part of why uh, uh, it'll be easier. So, but as we, on the other hand, as Reed says, you know, there's a culture that we were, everybody was doing it. And, uh, but the, the, uh, the evidence, it, the evidence is sufficiently clear that it's pretty hard to argue against. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and maybe that's what, that's what, uh, that's the kind of thinking that gets you a uh, distinguished professor, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Reed Siminiuk, Gordon Guyatt and Helen MacDonald talk about the new rapid recommendation on the use of oxygen for acute admissions. 
That article is now available on bmj.com. So have a look and let us know what you think. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon with much more EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.